Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Many years in appropriator and in leadership did not realize, because we had never spoken in these big terms before, if you have a stabilizer in it, that something will happen next January, and then you'll have $400, $500 billion worth of, of unemployment checks going out. It counts in the bill today. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here today with Ezra Klein. We're going to talk about federalism in the coronavirus era. Uh, but first, you know, we I think we wanted to talk about the um, fiscal stimulus measures that are or are not being considered in Congress. It's, um, it's very refreshing to me personally to see this topic, because unlike virology, it's something I know like a lot about, <laughs> have covered for years, feel very firm on. And there's a lot going on, right? So so House Democrats put out this kind of big proposal. It's a $3 trillion thing. It involves extending the bonus and employment insurance. It involves a lot of money for state and local governments. It involves some more direct payments to households, um, a few other sort of bits and pieces hither and yon. But there was a lot of discussion before before it sort of got written, of including an automatic stabilizers element in it, which means in normal person speak that money would be triggered by sort of uh, some objective indicator, right? So like the unemployment rate is high and therefore extra money flows. Uh, you can get more complicated than that, but instead of a sort of normal- Well, well to, put it even, yeah. to put it even a little bit more sharply, it would make most of a bill like this unnecessary in the future. Right. right. So if you look at what is in this bill, there is a provision to do additional stimulus checks above the 1200 that already got sent out, or there's a provision to extend the boosted UI to January 31st. And if or, you know, more money for small businesses to, to refill that or more SNAP benefits. And the idea would be that if you had automatic stabilizers, there would just be a provision somewhere that says these things extend until unemployment falls below 5% or whatever it might be, such that you don't have to keep writing these bills that you're having a big political fight over extending something you already passed. Yeah. Because like the emergency you're addressing is not ended. Right. Exactly. And there's sort of two virtues to that, right? So like in the long run, if you go back, if you look at uh, the Weeds interviews with Claudia Sam and with uh, Indy Dudagupta that I did both before coronavirus happened, this was like, there was no recession, but they were both authored different chapters of a book called Recession Ready that the Hamilton Project put out. And the concept there was that, look, if you have automatic programs in place for the next recession before that next recession happens, then you are much less likely to have a severe recession because as soon as the economic indicators start to look bad, instead of the stories being, oh man, things are looking bad, we wonder what Congress will do, and then like 12 stories about fights in Congress, the stories will say, things are looking bad. That means extra money is about to start flowing and this way or that way or another way. And A, it means people would get the help that they need. But B, it means that just like general business people would know that like 
there are problems and there is a solution coming. So you wouldn't have like stock markets going up and down on the day-to-day basis of like weird rumors in Politico or like random statements from different different members of Congress. And you would actually have a more stable economy over the long haul. Uh, now we're not in that kind of like hypothetical prophylactic situation, but automaticity would mean that even if Joe Biden becomes president and then suddenly Senate Republicans decide that they really want to see massive deficit reduction, it wouldn't matter, right? That for as long as the economic emergency lasts, emergency economic measures would continue to happen and we wouldn't see a replay of what what really hurt the American economy in 2011 when a new GOP congressional majority rode into town and I don't know exactly how to put it, but it's like, you know, they 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 kind of threw a fit uh, trying to get long term policy changes enacted and really derailed economic recovery for for quite a few years on that basis. I, I do want to make one distinction here when you're talking about the recession ready policies, because you can imagine two things we are talking about when we talk about automatic stabilizers. One is those policies where you'd begin to build a new anti-recessionary architecture into federal economic policy. So, right, like that might be that whenever unemployment rises above X percent, you begin to get a higher state Medicaid match, you begin to get um, a, a change in unemployment insurance. Then there's a bunch of policies in this moment, which their size relates to the severity of the coronavirus crisis, right? I, I don't think even if Congress was considering automaticity, it would make a $600 boost to UI whenever there was an elevated unemployment rate. So in this case, what we'd be talking about is automatic stabilizers for the like coronavirus policies for the duration of the coronavirus recession or depression. And like long story short, everybody seemed to agree on this. Um, this is not like some weird liberal dream. The Hamilton Project is considered to be a sort of like that, like Bob Rubin started the Hamilton Project. And there were calls for automatic stabilizers from the head of the New Democrat Coalition, which is like the largest caucus of House Democrats, um, but considered sort of like the, the, the moderate caucus. And then they're not in the bill. Yes. They're not in a bill, to be clear, that is not going to pass the Senate anyway. So like they're not even in the bill as a bargaining chip. They're just not in the bill. Right. Why are they not in the bill, Matt? Well, so Pelosi got asked about this at one of her her weekly press conferences. And the answer she gave, um, you know, Nancy Pelosi is not the clearest speaker in the world. This is now with Donald Trump and Joe Biden become a general fact about all our prominent political leaders. But she seemed to indicate in her answer that it had something to do with how the CBO was going to score automatic stabilizers. She said she thought it was a good idea, but they looked at it and the way the CBO score worked, it, it wasn't going to work. So I was interested in that because, you know, the, the, the CBO does a lot of things. Um, and I took her to be saying that there was some kind of technical issue with how the CBO scored automatic stabilizers that she thought was wrong or something like that, or that doing it in a non-automatic way led to a more favorable score. You know, I, I thought she was asserting some kind of technical flaw in the process. For an example, just put a pin in that. When they were writing the Affordable Care Act, there were a bunch of ideas that the Obama administration health policy people believed would reduce healthcare utilization and therefore keep the cost of things down. Uh, but the CBO said that they would only score sort of hard financial incentives as having that impact. Uh, and that became a big deal in the kind of construction of the Affordable Care Act. As it turned out, actual healthcare spending came in way below where the CBO had thought it would be. So a lot of the disagreements that they had about that wound up not being operative. Anyway, I checked back with Pelosi's team to to try to understand what, what she was saying there. And it wasn't anything like that. I, I mean, her point about the CBO was just that the CBO estimates that this recession will last a long time. So if you make the provisions extend automatically, the cost of the provisions gets really, really high. 
Um, oh, yeah, that's so, what I thought she was saying. I thought she was saying something more. I thought she was very clear about this point, actually. Okay, well, so my first read, which was too, I think, too generous to her and too mean to the CBO, was that there was some problem in the way the CBO was thinking about it. But it turns out, I mean, she she said this thing about the CBO, but the CBO is actually playing no relevant role here. It's just that, yes, if you extend the measures for as long as they're needed, they become very costly. But why that would be a reason to not extend them as long as they're needed is a little bit beyond me. And I wish you could get the CBO to do a hypothetical score, because the upshot should be that if you do an automatic extension... Uh, the forecast says that the fiscal cost goes up, but the forecast should also say that the economy recovers more quickly, which you would think would be the purpose of an economic recovery bill, uh, because they do do that. I mean, the, the scores are sensitive to the policy variables. Also, it's a $3 trillion bill. So, I mean, whatever you could possibly say about this, it's it's not exactly like they parked it under some, you know, again, Obama, he at one point just like busted out that the healthcare bill should cost less than a trillion dollars. And there was no- well, Pel- That came from the House. Even better. It came from Nancy Pelosi. Speaking speaking of this actual <laughs> right. particular issue. Right. So she wanted to be less than a trillion dollars. There's no policy reason why things should be less than a trillion dollars. But you know, like uh, I, I bought a MacBook and it cost nine hundred ninety nine dollars. And, you know, so it was like that. The healthcare bill, they wanted to keep the number of zeros low. But this isn't like that. It's a three trillion dollar bill. So if it became a six trillion dollar bill, like who cares? Trillion here, trillion there. I am like hair on fire furious about this. So a couple things about this one. You've seen the movie No Country for Old Men. I have. So at the end of it, uh, the I forget the name of the main killer, but goes to the wife and it's like, you know, I made a made a promise to to kill you. <laughs> and she tries to make an argument about why you shouldn't kill her. And he says, well, look, I got this coin I can flip. That's the best I can do for you. And she says, that coin's got nothing to do with it. Like, it's just you here. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that's how I feel about the CBO in this story. Yeah. Like the CBO has nothing to do with this. Like the CBO is accurately saying this is going to be expensive. And if you listen to what Pelosi says, and I think this is really important, she goes on to say in that same statement, which I found to be a very clear point of communication from Pelosi, that, you know, if the economy keeps being bad, they intend to keep coming back and doing more um, bills. Well, then what you're saying (laughs) is that you should just do the automatic stabilizers because like you're willing to spend the money so long as the economy is bad. CBO is telling you like it might cost this much. It also might not, right? It's an estimate. We'll, we'll see how bad the economy really is. And so you should just put it in because also you may be in a very different situation come say February, right? If Joe Biden wins, but Mitch McConnell retains the Senate um, or if Joe Biden wins, but Republicans can filibuster and Democrats don't do enough in reconciliation or don't do enough with... Um, or don't get rid of the filibuster, which I doubt they will under Biden, like you're not going to be able to pass any of this stuff. So you're going to be sitting there presiding over like a totally disastrous recovery. And so the whole thing is a little bit in, it's not a little bit infuriating. It's, it is infuriating. So then I might say, because this I believe is what happened during the Affordable Care Act and during a bunch of things in the Obama era that, well, Pelosi maybe has all these members who they have gotten like caught up in deficit politics and are freaking out about this. But as I mentioned earlier, the head of the relevant caucus of the moderates caucus, not the blue dogs, which are a lot smaller, like he was all for automatic stabilizers. And when I've talked to people around Congress right now, the view is that basically all of the policymaking is happening in Pelosi's office, right? I mean, the legislators are far flung. They're not all in Congress together, right? They're doing remote voting. Like it, it's a whole different situation than normally. She's writing these bills. This bill is like like a Christmas tree of stuff in it. So to not put this in, I think just reflects like Pelosi's view that overly big price tags are bad politics for Democrats and it's an election year and, and, and so on. But this is a bad view and it's a dangerous view. And what's even weirder about the whole damn thing is this bill will not pass. Like it won't. McConnell's already said they're not even going to take it up. So all you are doing at this point is putting them in as like a line in the sand, as an explanation of where you are. By the way, as of the minority party, 
I wrote this piece, like talking to a bunch of Democrats in particular, talking to um, some House and Senate progressives like uh, Jayapal about like, how are Democrats thinking about this? And kind of the answer I got back was the White House has abdicated so much responsibility. The Democrats feel they need to be the governing party. They need to govern from the minority to prevent suffering. And like, that's all fine. But one of the things I ended up arguing in that piece was you can be so concerned about seeming responsible that you're not being responsible. And to not put automatic stabilizers in this bill, knowing what is likely to come down the pike, particularly if Democrats win, is irresponsible. And that's all the more true because like, if Mitch McConnell is not going to let you pass them, fine, let Mitch McConnell stop you. But like, fight for them. Right. Instead, you have Steny Hoyer saying that his red lines are the state and local aid and the increased stimulus checks. That's all fine. But all that stuff should be automatically stabilized. Yes. But I mean, I do think that this interacts a little bit with the fact that it's not going to become law at all. Right. So there's like there's like two ways of thinking about the like exercise of writing a bill and passing a bill that is just designed to sort of hang out there. Right. And so, like, one is, well, since it's a fantasy, it's not the result of political compromise. You ought to write, like, the best possible bill, like the pure statement of principles. Like, what would a Vox article say should be the bill? Then the other way to think about it, which I think is closer to Pelosi's way of thinking about things, is that, like, politics is politics. So it doesn't really matter what the bill says. And you just kind of cover this base, that base, and the other base. I don't know why she made the calculation that automatic stabilizers and a high price tag are a bad look politically for Democrats. But I think the view would be, look, taking the political hit of making the bill bigger could be worth doing if you were writing a law. But that since you're not writing a real law, you're just tossing out a messaging document there's no need for it to say this kind of thing. I don't know. You know, like you could go, uh, there's a certain imponderability to, to that kind of thing. To me, though, what's most troubling actually about leaving it out is that I tend to think that McConnell is going to break on this subject of doing additional stimulus. It doesn't make sense for Republicans to kind of stare down the face of Trump losing and their incumbent Senate candidates getting wiped out as the economy collapses. And in other parts, like they keep talking about that, right? Like all this urgency to quote unquote reopen the economy is, you know, I mean, it's in part about the economy. It's in part about different views about epidemiology, but it's in part about the sense that this is hurting them politically. So they're going to want to do stimulus. And there's going to be a negotiation about what should be in that. And to me, the most important thing for Democrats to negotiate for, like the most important thing, is just that the stimulus not be arbitrarily turned off just because Republicans lose the election in November. And I just think for pure politics, like they have to be talking about that now because the the speed with which Republican Party thinking on the budget deficit evolves, like, it makes your head spin. You know, like, like one week it's big, the other week it's it's not. Like, you never know. And, like, if you don't talk about that now, if you don't plant that marker now, and if you don't bargain for it hard now, you could totally lose it. Whereas things like aid to state government, like that can come and go. You know, the the sort of ideological battle lines over that are very well understood. Like Democrats uh, approve of the government spending money on things and Republicans don't. Whereas it, it's precisely because this automaticity thing is like so technical and weird that I think you have to like put it out there in front of people. But it's not even that technical and weird. I mean, you were saying a couple minutes ago that you're not sure why Pelosi thinks it's a bad look for the party. As far as anybody can tell, 
it's not a bad look for the party. Um, Data for Progress put out a memo where they did a fair amount of polling on automatic stabilizers and voter support. Um, they described it in this particular uh, part as increasing unemployment benefits when unemployment is above 5%. Voter supported by a 58-point margin. It has majority support from both Democrats and Republicans. When they describe it more vaguely, they say, you know, just increasing spending during a recession, um, doing so automatically. It's got a 65% support level and 52% of Republicans support it. So I really don't, I mean, what seems to be happening here, what Pelosi said, I think reasonably straightforwardly, is that she thinks that trying to pass a bill that costs whatever it would be, $6 trillion, let's call it, but I really don't know, $5 trillion, $4 trillion, I, I have no idea, would be a bad look for Democrats, a worse look than taking the recession very seriously. But really think forward a couple months. So like, let's say that what's going to happen here is Mitch McConnell is not going to let you pass the policies you need to pass. So come election day, you know, you're going to have 16% unemployment in this country or 12% unemployment in this country, you know, something very high, higher than at any point in the 2008 recession. And you're worried that you're going to, that like, you're going to be on TV saying that we tried and they wouldn't let you. And they're going to be saying the Democrats wanted to spend more money to prevent this unbelievable economic cataclysm from happening. I genuinely don't understand the political theory there. Like, I often think Pelosi has a plan, but I don't see the plan. Yeah. So let's let's take a break, because I, I think we should talk about the economic situation that is developing, because uh, because I think that's important context for this. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. So right now, if you look at the numbers, the unemployment rate is insane, right? Like much higher. We don't know exactly because it hasn't been updated in several weeks, but much higher than at any point during the Great Recession. At the same time, if you look at some other economic indicators, like the stock market is okay. And it seems like you saw recently earnings reports from Lowe's and from Walmart, a couple other sort of big box retailers uh, who haven't been forced to close. And they're doing okay. You know, people are people are buying stuff. And it's a little bit weird, and you never know exactly what's going on with the stock market. Uh, but part of what's going on in real life is that precisely because the last stimulus bill is so generous to lower wage people who lose their jobs, uh, because it's $600 extra, that's like a huge amount. 
if your normal benefits would be low. It's not that much if if you're rich, but it has done an incredible amount to bolster the economic fortunes of unemployed people. So even though way more people are out of a job than ever were during the Great Recession, they have much more money than the unemployed people had during the Great Recession. So as bad as the economy is- Can I add a little factoid on this? Let's do it. The expanded unemployment insurance during the Great Recession passed in the stimulus bill was a $25 boost to weekly benefits. This time it is $600. Right. So it's it's a it's a huge difference and it means that we are not seeing at the moment secondary recession impacts, right? We are seeing a lot of people lose jobs because the specific place of business where they work has been hit by the virus. But we are not seeing yet just like nobody can pay the rent because they don't have any money or Everyone is trying to make a giant bag of rice last all month because they can't afford food. But those unemployment benefits are set to expire at the end of July. At the same time, tax revenue at state and local governments has gone way, way down uh, because in particular, you rely a lot on like meal and beverage taxes, things like that. And so state governments are going to need to start laying people off. And so that means we are really set up for a late summer economic cataclysm where even if like all this reopening goes pretty optimistically and there's no huge second wave, no need to return to lockdown, uh, but there's going to be like a like a dump truck hitting the economy of out of work people needing to in- incredibly quickly scale back what they're spending, of state governments increasing the number of -of out-of-work people, and then of even if the virus went away with a magic wand, just basic dislocation from nobody having money or nobody being able to spend on anything. And both Mitch McConnell's view that we should just wait and see what happens and Pelosi's view that we don't want to like be on record as wanting to spend a lot of money are very puzzling to me. I mean, we can really, it's so hard to predict what will happen with economics generally. But when the whole economy is being held up by an emergency relief bill that's set to expire at the end of July, like you really can see what's going to happen. All these unemployed people, if they don't get unemployment benefits, they're not going to have any money. Like it's the most predictable thing I've ever heard of like there's no there's no like secret other way people can get money so i've been talking to some economic forecasters and the way at least some of them see this going i think is really telling so we're gonna have as states do varying levels of reopening a bounce particularly an employment bounce in the not necessarily this month but like fast over the summer probably And so you might really see some months there where we add millions of jobs. Right. Because we've lost such a cataclysmic number, right? What if we lost something like 30 million jobs or we've had something like 30 million unemployment? It's easy to have a three or four million job month. Like just some people go back to work. Let's say we have three, three or four million job months, right? Um, So 12 million jobs come back. That means you've still lost something like 18, 20 million jobs. But amidst that trend, Republicans who, for reasons that are, you know, whatever, um, do not seem to want to pass more stimulus in the summer um, are not going to want it, right? They're going to say, look, the economy is coming back. We should just keep on with reopening. Then you're going to have a couple things happen. One is, as you note, in July, the expanded unemployment benefits end. Um, also, a lot of the small business money is running out, right? There's more of that in in the bill that House Democrats passed, but the Senate won't take up. So a lot of those businesses are already functionally dead. They're zombie businesses and more are going to follow that, right? I mean, there are tons of businesses that have been kept alive for a little while while they were waiting to see what happened by a PPP loan, but it just turns out the office workers aren't going to come back or you can't be in most cases a restaurant filling half of your tables. Right. You can't be a bar that doesn't open until 2022. Like those things are not possible. And so that's not like not how the revenue model works. You're going to lose a lot of them. So you're going to have like real business closures for a lot of the people who remain unemployed. 
the um, boost to their income that is like keeping them afloat is going to drain out of the system. And so simultaneously, you're going to have better labor market statistics, but even higher levels of economic suffering, right? In a funny way, we're decoupling through government policy in both directions, like what is happening in the labor market from what a lot of people are feeling. Not everybody, but 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 for many people. So then what you're going to have is like this extended period where it's like we added some jobs, but in the fall that kind of ends. We very well may have a big second wave of or even multiple waves of infections as states reopen, which leads a number of them to lock back down. And so there won't be the money like Congress is going to stop adding more money into the economy. The economy is going to look like it's getting better. It is going to actually feel like it is getting worse for many of the people in it because it actually is like they lost money they were getting. And we are going to like have some of the water washed back and see how bad the economic situation really is, where it is not literally as bad as it looks right now in the sense that many of the businesses that are currently closed can reopen once the public health emergency allows them to. But it is worse than people in some ways recognize it because many of them will not reopen. Things that currently have like a sign at the top of the storefront, that sign is going to go away. Mm-hmm. And like that's a really grim fall. And that's why the automatic stabilizers were so like that's why I'm so charged up about this because like what you needed is for like the system to be built such that Congress making dumb decisions in the summer, which is what Congress is going to do, given what Mitch McConnell has been saying, wouldn't matter that much. But instead, it's going to matter tremendously. I mean, for Democrats, in some ways, like this is all like it's almost exactly what you want Mitch McConnell doing because he's going to create a total economic catastrophe when his party is the one that stands to lose from that. But for the country, you don't want this to happen. Like, this is terrible. It is just going to be terrible for people. It is going to be a terrible situation for either a reelected President Trump or the next Democratic president to face. And I don't know, like, we shouldn't do this. Yeah. So I worry that one thing that's happened is that we've adopted policies that have made some of our indicators start looking very misleading. So like one thing I've seen some people say is, oh, look at Denmark and they did things and they've kept their unemployment rate under 5%. You know, like it's a wildly different economic situation in Denmark from the United States, according to that account. But actually what they did in Denmark was the government has given a lot of money to companies to keep people on the payroll, even if they're not working. What the American government chose to do was give a lot of money to people who are put off the payroll if they're not working. Now, you can debate the sort of merits of that Danish approach versus the American approach, but the actual outcome is extremely similar. In both Denmark and the United States, many millions of people who were working in February are not working today, and almost all of those people still have money. So, like, it's it's the same. There is no extra work getting done in Denmark that isn't happening here, and there's no massive material deprivation happening in the United States uh, versus what's happening in Denmark. But if you have the Danish solution, then it becomes obvious from a headline indicator that if you yank the support, those people will get laid off and the unemployment rate will go up. So you have to look and say, do I want the unemployment rate to spike? And if the answer is no, you have to keep offering the support. In America, it goes the other way. Right. Like when businesses start to reopen in a narrow sense, kicking people off UI will encourage more of them to like go get marginal jobs at local retail outlets. But kicking people off UI is going to radically reduce people's living standards. Right. Because to be unemployed right now, today, May 2020 in the United States is just very different from what being unemployed normally means in America. You are right now being treated much more generously than unemployed people ever have been in American history. So it's just not as bad as it sounds. But 13% unemployment with normal UI is going to be so much worse than 20% unemployment with current UI, but it's going to sound better. 
right? It's going to sound like, well, the economy added- That's such an important point. The economy just added 10 million jobs in the past six weeks. Uh, The unemployment rate is falling at the most rapid pace in history, right? There's going to be plenty to sort of take a victory lap over. And I think it's a this it's an open question in the political science literature how much the actual state of the economy matters versus sort of spin about the economy and i think we already saw right like when 5 million people filed initial ui claims that was written up as like the worst economic thing to ever happen then there were like caveats about the ui and stuff in there but it did not generate um headlines that were nearly as benign as a danish type solution would have. And it means that when we go in the reverse and start throwing people off this, I do think that the coverage is going to be misleading. We're going to say, oh, the economy is a lot stronger than it was in May, when actually everybody's incomes are going to be lower. And I don't, uh, if you want to know, like, what is Mitch McConnell thinking? I think that that's what he's thinking. That the unemployment rate will probably be falling as of September and October, even though the level of material deprivation may be rising. And I I think it's it's legitimately a situation in which the politics are weird enough that members of Congress should consider just like doing the right thing. Uh, because it's it's very hard to guess. Like, how are people going to interpret a 12% unemployment rate that represents a lot of fall, but also everyone's poorer? Like, it's very it's a very confusing situation, indicator-wise. And they should maybe just like try to help people. I, I agree. I'm not a hundred percent sure how it will play, but I have a suspicion. People notice when they become very poor. They notice when they can't pay their bills. Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump and others are going to want to, and Fox News will want to channel that anger at governors and mayors who are not reopening fast enough. Right. But also, if the epidemiology is even close to correct, particularly in the fall, if we are more reopened, the disease is going to be like spiking back up, which really does scare people. And the Democrats will be out there with somewhat larger proposals. But this, again, is why I am genuinely upset to see this House Democrat bill, because it has two, in my view, huge failures. One huge failure is that it is not built around a central policy that is a message anybody cares about. I am a big fan of state and local aid. It's really important. So the fact that that is what the bill is actually built around, that is great. But the bill is a Christmas tree. It It's like everything, including, by the way, a lot of stuff that doesn't really need to be in there and some stuff that is not super popular. And so the bill just like has a lot of stuff in it. It's just like a $3 trillion stimulus bill. It's not like they've decided to pick a fight on two issues and like put everything into messaging that and coordinate with the Joe Biden campaign and like make this a thing, right? Like the gi- like you could imagine right democrats getting behind a paycheck guarantee act and like the medicare crisis proposal instead they're doing cobra which i wish they would stop with but whatever like it, there are a lot of ways to do this it could be bigger stimulus checks it could be anything so they're not doing that they also don't have the stabilizers in whereas i actually think that is one of the most easily messaged things like to me i would i would have preferred basically you have a bill that is two things it is state and local aid And then it is stabilizers attached to the UI, attached to the state and local aid, and attached to the stimulus checks. That's it. That's all that's in the bill. And I'm not saying there are not other worthy priorities, but the idea that Democrats want to spend money so the support continues as long as it is needed, that is an easy message and it is the right thing to do. Right. And instead, they have a bill that has like a billion things in it because like every interest group is getting taken care of and doesn't have, I would say, at least the second most important thing of all in it and sets up, I mean, recognizing the bill may not pass one way or the other, but if you imagine their bill passing, sets up a situation where Republicans can crash the economy next year. Like, I want to be really clear, that is not responsible legislating. Like they are doing a bad job at their job. Yeah. You're totally right that I think it's a big failure to have not like built it around clear pillars. I also don't totally understand why it's one bill. Sure. Like if it was me, there would be a state local aid legislation and then it would have automaticity built into it. 
And then there would be legislation on the UI thing simply because like reasonable people can disagree about any particular thing on this map. And and the unemployment insurance happens to have become like a big bugbear uh, for a number of Republicans and people in the in the business community. So like uh, unemployment insurance is um, one of the most disputed things in macroeconomic stabilization, because the way Democrats look at it, unemployed people are super high marginal propensity to consume. Right. You give somebody some money, a person who has no other income, and they are going to go spend that money. So they say it's super effective. Now, conservatives say, look, if you pay people conditional on them not having a job, that discourages them from getting a job. So it's counterproductive. So it's like one school of thought says unemployment insurance is the best stimulus. And another school of thought says unemployment insurance is the worst stimulus. And then they fight about it a lot. And I tend to side more with the people who say it's best, but it just like I think would be good practice to like separate that out from other things that are going on because state and local aid is the opposite of that, right? Like nobody thinks that aid to state and local government is like the absolute highest leverage, highest cost benefit thing a person could do in the universe. At the same time, it's obviously helpful at the margin in a huge economic downturn when if you lay off the librarian, she's just going to add to the list of unemployed people. Like, just don't lay off the librarian, you know, and you can put that out there and try to get Republican governors to support you, you know, things like that. Um, And all of it should have triggers in it, objective triggers. And one of the big fallacies of doing it without the triggers, right, is that they have these timeframes on. So like, that's a trigger. So if you're saying, okay, well, we're going to extend this and we're going to extend it through January, which is how the bill is written. Well, so you're committing yourself to the view that the economic emergency will be over in January. Now, no matter what you guess, there's a certain chance you're going to get it wrong. That's why conditions-based triggers are good. But like January is definitely wrong. That's not a guess. We're like, Nancy Pelosi might be right or might be wrong. Like, it's definitely wrong. And if you ask her, she says it's wrong. Yes. Right. So she just says, like, well, we're going to we can do more bills. But like, A, it's not clear that you can do more bills. And B, if Democrats win the election, I would think they're going to want to legislate on like some of these other topics they've been spending the past six years talking about, right? Like, and Congress is not- No, it turns out not. They just want to <laughs> fight over whether or not to extend stimulus forever. Right, they, they, so that, right. I mean, that's what's, like, insane about this. Like, if you ask anybody, including Nancy Pelosi, like, what happened in 2009? It's like, well, they chewed up all this time dealing with an economic emergency, and they weren't able to address as many topics as they otherwise would have liked to have addressed. So why are they- doing this. You know, even if McConnell blocks the bills, at least you then have the bills written. You know, like it's done. You built a consensus in your caucus. Maybe you'll have the majority in the Senate. But it's like, if you don't do the work now, you have to do it in February 2021. And like, that doesn't help anything or anybody. And I I just like... you would have to have such a strong evidence behind the idea that this is better politics. Do you convince me? I mean, I'm not like so high minded that I'm going to say, well, they should forget all about the politics. But the political theory here seems so hazy. Like what what's it based on? What is the evidence that if this number went up to six trillion, like you would lose everyone? It's whatever. I don't know. (laughs) It's bad. I I guess we're going in circles at this point. Let's take a break and talk about federalism here, because I think it relates. Absolutely. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. So one of the sub-themes of the Trump administration era punditry is that Donald Trump will do a set of things that maybe point in a lot of directions, and conservative intellectuals will try to attach a, like a principled philosophical justification to them. 
So Donald Trump has been doing functionally nothing on coronavirus. He had like we are uh, probably now 70 some days after his declaration of a national emergency. And there is still not even a plan to the extent there is anything. There are guidelines which he routinely ignores in his own comments. But so Donald Trump has been all over the map, but mainly not doing anything. So there's been an effort among some conservatives in a way that I think is worth addressing to say, you know what's great about Donald Trump? He really just believes in federalism, which is to say he really believes in letting states and cities take the lead, because, of course, that is what has been happening in the absence of a federal response has been a lot more governors have had to do things that in another context they wouldn't have had to do. In some cases, things they cannot actually do. But there's a good version of this to, to just show that I'm not pulling this out of thin air. Um, Chris DeMuth, uh, who is at the Hudson Institute, he wrote a Wall Street Journal opinion piece uh, on April 17th called Trump Rewrites the Book on Emergencies. And he says, Trump has given pride of place to federalism and private enterprise, lauding the patriotism and proficiency of our fantastic governors and mayors, our incredible business leaders and genius companies. Now, Obviously, Trump has been attacking the patriotism and proficiency of many of our governors, which uh, uh, DeMuth sort of acknowledges elsewhere in his piece, but seems like a problem. But well, he's what, praising the amazing ones. And, yeah, he's and praising the amazing ones who, who, who he likes. Um, but in a general sense, it is worth noting that you really could have a federalist approach to this. And it might even make sense. And people have thought about what that would look like. Um, the Harvard uh, Safra Center for Ethics, which under Danielle Allen has had a bunch of working groups putting together a really impressive collection of papers about what to do um, in, 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 to, with COVID-19, has a paper by Daniel Allen, by Anne-Marie Sauter, Josh Simons, and Carmel Shahar. It's called Federalism is an Asset, How to Activate it to Build a National Pandemic Program. And one thing they show is that in a federalist approach, the federal government has a role it needs to play very clearly and very well. Like what it needs to do is it needs to support state governments who are seeing their revenues collapse so they can spend the money on what they think needs to be spent on. So things like state and local aid, which is in this House bill, they need to sort of act as a scientific clearinghouse because the federal government has the kind of vast scientific resources for the CDC and other things that the, the states don't. So it needs to be doing the job of, of centralizing that, communicating it, et cetera. And then it needs to be supporting and coordinating the supply chain so states don't end up in sort of ruinous bidding wars against each other. And then in supporting the states in those ways, the states can actually with the resources they need to do what they need to do, given what their local conditions are, they can move forward. Now, that is not at all what Donald Trump is doing. He's confusing the scientific guidance, talking about potentially injecting yourself with bleach. He has actually been um, creating bidding wars at times with using the federal government against states. There's a very telling thing that happened where the Republican, by the way, governor of Maryland, Larry Hogan, said that when he got 500,000 testing kits from South Korea, he made them land at Baltimore airport and protected them with state troopers because he was worried the feds would take them away from him. So there has not been like a like a well coordinated you know cooperative relationship there, but you could have it, and in many ways it would make sense because different states really are different, but you don't, and you see how much you don't between Donald Trump attacking any governor as being insufficiently transactionally praiseful of him, and Senate Republicans poo pooing the need to support state and local governments at the very moment their revenues are collapsing when the federal government can issue unlimited debt and they can't. Right. Well, and also, you know, the president has not articulated federalism as what he is trying to do here. I mean, you see that he has been attacking governors who don't open things up as quickly as he thinks they should be doing. You know, so even on the sort of level of like federal neutralism, like we're not achieving that. Like what's actually happening is that Senate Republicans are wielding a kind of fiscal axe against states. And then the president is encouraging protesters against state government restrictions. And it's a very dicey situation, you know, because, you know, the United States is a, is a law governed country. Um, but in any society, 
it puts a lot of pressure on laws when you force the state to act and really enforce them. No governor wants to send the police into a barber shop, arrest the customers and the barbers, and drive them home. And they really don't want to do that if the president of the United States and Fox News is going to encourage a crowd of protesters to surround the barber shop and try to defend it. And they really, really, really don't want to do it if the average police officer in the United States is much more conservative than the average person in the United States and is likely to listen to the Fox News hosts and the president of the United States who hail the protesters as heroes of freedom. You know, like, it doesn't it doesn't work if you are going to be actively undermining state legislation along these things. And the president has, I think, been incredibly successful at ratcheting up pressure on Democratic governors to move more quickly than they were initially planning to do in terms of reducing restrictions. And that is an interesting use of like bully pulpit type powers. The president has no formal legal authority to force states to drop restrictions, but by turning it into a controversial polarized issue where people are not hearing, listen to the rules, listen to your governor, they're hearing, you know, like brave freedom fighters need to go forward. It's a very destabilizing situation. And it's like really the opposite of cooperative federalism in a like theoretical, you know, type type construct sense. The other thing is that there are these inherently federal functions related to things like air travel, where the federal government is not actually doing anything at the moment. Like there's no screening of people who fly around the country. And I'm not 100% sure what the best thing to do about that would be, but I'm pretty sure it's not nothing. There's an obvious risk, particularly if you're trying to have a differentiated response at local levels, that people are going to move from place to place and it's going to spread infection. And the United States is just like big. It's a big country in a way that, you know, like Singapore is small and Korea is like bigger than Singapore, but much smaller than the United States. And so that's one reason you can have a situation which like, well, there's no cases in Montana. Um, So great. So Montana should have less restrictions. But is that going to mean as the summer comes, like how many people fly to Montana? Like and what what are they supposed to do about that? It's very... um, I don't know what to say, but like, you can't just not have a federal response to things and like gesture vaguely at federalism is not a real answer. Uh, A lot of activity is just like very interesting. Yes. Well, we're I guess we're going to try how not having a federal response to things works out and and, and see what happens here. Fair enough. Okay. Um, So with that, we will see what happens. Uh, And thanks, uh, Ezra. And thanks, as always, to our producer, Jeffrey Geld. uh, And the weeds will be back on Tuesday. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.